and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was The Pretty Things, and that was a part of a, a trilogy from Parachute, and that was the, the element of that called Rain, because I've got a huge pleasure to welcome Wally Waller today, ex-Pretty Things songwriter, bassist, guitarist, vocals producer, and, and a lot more. And we're kind of looking over what is uh, an amazing career over the last 60 years. First of all, a huge welcome, Wally. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad, yeah, it's great to be here. Let's just touch upon Parachute, first of all, because for many people, that's an album that you have co-wrote with Phil predominantly. What were your memories about that period? It's a strange period we'd had before uh, SF Sorrow, which, which now is regarded as quite a big album. At the time, it wasn't, you know, it was, we have always had problems. Our relationship with EMI was never great. For instance, after giving them SF Soro, followed by Parachute, which, I mean, to most record companies, they would think that's, that's you know, pretty good. I mean, one, you know, good singles as well that, that we put together. But the, uh, the, the reaction of the, the bean counters in the EMI was to cancel our contract. That was canon. <laughs> People laugh when I tell them this. You know, in fact, we were we were doing a collaboration at the time. Uh, they were in no hurry to get us back into the studio after SF Sorrow. They never liked us. The upper management, our only ally mm-hmm. in EMI, was Norman Smith. God bless him. He he understood well what we were doing, what we were trying to do. They didn't really push anything we did. Um, I, I think we got off on in their eyes on the wrong foot when the first offering we gave them, which was a single called Defects in Grey. So when, when we sat down in the matter of days before, we finished doing our collaboration with Philippe Debarge, uh, the latest uh, thing. Phil and I had, a, we had, we worked quite hard. We were quite prolific at that time, but the song cupboard was bare. Almost immediately, we finished with Philippe. We got a phone call from Norman saying, uh, I've booked studio time and we're going back in to make a new album. So Phil and I kind of looked at each other and thought, wow. So Phil and I had to, we had like a matter of a week or so to kind of come up with a concept for an album, some songs, some, somewhere to start recording. Phil said to me, well, you know, what are we going to do? And I said, well, what have you got? You know, I've got a few things. He said, well, I don't know. I don't know. What are we going to do? Are we going to do another concept album? I said, I've got a kind of a little story, he said, about the guy who, who, uh, who lives in a small apartment like a hermit. You know, he never goes, he keeps scrapbooks of um, famous people. And, and, uh, and so he said, because he cuts things out of newspapers all the time, he cuts squares and things out of newspapers and sticks them in his scrapbook. He says, I'm going to call him the good Mr. Square. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, bing, straight away, I thought, I mean, I, 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 I sort of heard a melody. And within about 10 or 15 minutes, we had the whole song. It just poured out. It's like it had been written before. I had to ask a few people, have you heard this song before? You know, and, I, and they said, no. Finally, we realized that we were writing, you know, the things that we were doing together. It's either about the, you know, the town or the country or, or you know, escaping yeah. one, one way or this way or that way, that gave us our theme and, our, you know, our impetus to, to keep going. And um, Phil said to me, let's call it Parachute. And I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, he said yeah, listen. He said, um, you know, when you 
If you're in a, a, you know, the engine fails in a plane, you've got to get out. He said, the, you know, you can, you've got a parachute. If you get a parachute, you've got a chance. But, you know, but he said, even that, you know, it's not sure. You know, you're, you're not guaranteed mm. you're going to be safe. You might have a Roman candle and plummet straight to earth. So I kind of, I said, yeah, okay. Your story goes, predates the pretty things. And you had a quite a journey before that. And in fact, um, a hit record quite early on when you were in uh, Burn Elliott and the Fenman with, with a cover of, of Money. So were they your first professional band? Your first professional band. There have been a few sort of semi-pro amateur. Yeah. Always with John Povey, by the way. You know, he was a drummer in those days. Um, and uh, he, he was, so we went through a couple of bands before, before the Fenman. We, we, we'd just come back from Germany. And we used, we were quite we were quite popular. Things were very regional in those days, and we in, in around Dartford and, and the Kent area, which is where we sprang from. We had quite a, quite a following, and and then the, uh, Peter Sullivan from Decca Records, who was quite a was quite a respected um, producer at the time. He had a good stable of artists like Lulu, Tom Jones. Um, so he came down to, to watch one of our gigs uh, and he was impressed and he said, come in and do a, do a recording test. So we did. We, we, we did a recording test at Decca uh, and we did four or five songs. One of them was Money. He said, well, well OK, well, we'll be in touch. <laughs> Don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> so, you know, so a month, two passed, nothing really happened much until the second, uh, the Beatles' second album came out. And one of the cuts on that was money. At, at the time, it was quite uh, acceptable to kind of, a lot of people covered Beatles songs from their albums. And uh, and Peter Sullivan thought, oh, I've got that. So I mean, well, I've done it. So he, he dug out our, um, our audition tape and mixed it up and said, come in and sign the contract. We're going to release it. So And within weeks, uh, we were in the charts. It was just out of nowhere. I don't know quite uh, how it happened. It was one of those moments. I thought, well, this is, <laughs> this music game is too easy, I thought. <laughs> All the best things in life are free. You can give that to the birds and bees. I want money.
didn't seem too long before Burn Elliott left. So then you became the Fenman. Well, yeah, he's a, we had a we had a manager who he came from the big band era. He was a singer, and I don't think he could get the concept of groups and bands. And he whispered into Burn's ear that you know he could be a big star, and you, you don't need all these <laughs> grubby musicians. You know, <laughs> get rid of them. Uh, it, 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 a meeting was called with the manager of Bernard and us guys. And, and they said, well, look, obviously, you know, Bern is the big star here and uh, uh, you, uh, we're going to put you on wages and he's going to have like the... <laughs> Unanimously, he got the one-fingered salute. And, you know, I haven't seen him not since that day. That was sometime, it was like 1964. I, I haven't heard from him. I never knew. And uh, I think when, uh, when he decided to, to be a big star... I don't think Elvis or, or, or too many people lost lost a lot of sleep at night. Yeah, but so, but, um, but part of our, you know, you know Bernard and the Femme big kind of vocal presence, you know, with callbacks and stuff. And uh, but it was Bern was singing the lead. So we we looked at each other after this meeting, and, um, and well, what are we going to do now? So. It seemed obvious that, that you know we we you know, we had a, a talent for singing together in harmony. So we thought, well, we're just going to do that, and we did a few kind of Beach Boys covers. You know, yeah. the Four Seasons. In fact, the first record at Decca we did, we recorded after we split with Burn, and we were just the Fenmen. The first thing we did was a cover of Rag Doll, which was a, a very big hit for the Four Seasons, and we had. You know, we didn't, we kind of, our presence was felt anyway in the UK. And we went to CBS and we were, we were asked to cover Mamas and Papas Big at um, California Dreaming. I'd been writing for a while, but the first thing I, I, I took, we were, we were being recorded by an American guy called Jim Economides, who apparently had something to do with the Beach Boys. And, uh, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not too sure how much that was, but he seemed okay. He said, well, will you go out and he saw yeah. I played him rejected. And he said, yeah, we're good. that's it. That's an A-side. So um, that was my first, the first thing that I ever written that made uh, the A-side of a record. I grew up in
been childhood friends since the age of four we lived we lived in a small cul-de-sac you know on a new council estate which was built in the wake of the second world war I mean, the labor government had a massive house building program yeah. we moved in and there was in fact phil phil's family was there first but they were you know it was right across the street uh, and we soon became bosom buddies uh, we were the same age we were the same we had a, uh, an idyllic childhood. We were inseparable. But things, a lot of things have transpired along the way. Um, well, one of the things being that yeah, when we were about 10, uh, 9, 10, it suddenly there was a lot of kerfuffle going on. And, and uh, Phil and I discovered that who we thought were his parents were, in fact, his aunt and uncle. And he, he had been adopted. His birth mother had, had married well and, and wanted to wanted to take uh, Phil back into her own custody, and it was it was it was such a shock and uh, it was such an upbringing. And after many court cases and stuff, uh, it was decided that he should be taken back. We weren't allowed to. All our le- letters were censored and nothing. We said, well, I didn't see Phil again until fifteen or sixteen, maybe a bit more. Gosh. And uh, and we were different people. We weren't the same kids that so we kind of. You know, I was going off to be an electrical engineer. Phil was going to art school, and, and that's when I I'd been playing. I had a guitar since I was I don't know twelve thirteen. I I joined as a the feminine and had became active. And at the same time, when Phil went to art school and met Dick Taylor and well the rest is history. But that's how we kind of went different ways. When Phil was making his third studio album, Emotions, they were moving away from that art school yeah. R&B kind of scene and, and psychedelia was happening. He wanted to, to try and write some you know, material. He asked me over one day, but we weren't always home together at the same time. I'd be working, he'd be working, you know, whatever. Uh, he said, come over this afternoon and see if we can write some songs. I've never done it before. And uh, so... I came up, got my guitar, we went, and, and um, the first song we wrote was The Sun, which was, which was uh, not a bad way to start. It was well regarded. Oh, it was my passport to the pretty things, really, uh, because at the end of the afternoon we had The Sun, and we had the bands of about two or three more. Uh, and I think, you know, Phil was so delighted he found someone he could, could work with and, and produce things. Yeah. He said, "Why don't you join the band?" I think, I think he felt kind of a bit let down by, by the kind of support he was he was getting from from other members. I, I mean, I don't know too much about, but anyway, he, he said to me that that you know he 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 needed to make changes. In fact, John Stacks was uh, I knew uh, um, John Stacks from from years. I went to I didn't go to the same school as so I went to a different school, but I went to the same. And he said John Stacks was. Was was my friend. In fact, we were. Here's another one. Here's another one. We were born on the same hospital ward, three days apart. Wow. John Stacks and I. And they were the first two bass players. I mean, it's like there's something special going on there. But Bill said that you know it wasn't happening. I don't know. People weren't 
putting their weight on. I don't know. It's not, you know, I think Phil understood. He asked me also because he's seen the, the, the Fenman. He'd been to a few gigs now and again. And because uh, and he knew John. Uh, John was quite a kind of dynamic character and good, you know, uh, you know, front, had a good stage presence and stuff, and an amazing falsetto voice too, <laughs> to boot. Uh, so he uh, he said, ask John if he'd like to join as well. So I said, yeah. When I asked John, he of course, why not? So uh, so that's uh, so again we moved uh, together into another situation so um yeah and i think we had nobody really apart from phil sang in the pretty things before and john and i were well versed in singing in harmony and we had we brought that into the band and and phil became most of the things he's doing three-part harmony alien kind of territory to phil but you know he, he knuckled down and we went through things and he got it my voice has been described I remember a journalist said it's like, I mean, on, on one thing I did, he said it's like, it's like a, a misfiring chainsaw. <laughs> but, you know, John is the archetypal choir boy. He's got the sweetest full setting you can imagine. And Phil's a, Phil's a blues singer. So you think you throw them together and, uh, and, and what do you got? I mean, and, you know, some people just sing together and it sounds cool. Uh, the pretty thing's. Harmony uh, uh, work was well regarded by most musical journalists and most, you know, to, to have that colour. Uh, uh, and John um, had studied piano as a child. Don't forget, he was a drummer yeah. in, in the family. But, you know, the drum stool was still, you know, was, was very well occupied at the time by Skip Allen. So, uh, so then that vacancy wasn't available. So, uh, so John was, um, you know, a very competent keyboard player and... Um, um, it was great. We went to EMI uh, and um, we were put under the under the wing of uh, Norman Smith, which is one of the best things that happened to a lovely guy, a great friend of mine, uh, latterly. And uh, uh, and we had I, I, I learned a lot from him, not because he was trying to teach me anything. Yeah. His enthusiasm his, uh, and his expertise rubbed off. On, and I was uh, I was a very willing he regarded me as his kind of protege in the end. Uh, I used to be very involved with um, most of the productions um, at the, the EMI time. I found I really found my feet as a as a musician and composer and, 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 and the maker of sound. I mean, Norman envisaged like painting pictures with sound. He's very inventive. He's used anything to to make a sound that, that he wanted to hear. I was very very lucky to work with him and. Sometimes, uh, uh, you know, you might start with a certain concept, but other people, you know, throw in a few things and you think, hmm, that's a good idea.
mentioning this before about SF Sorrow and, and EMI not giving it the, the respect and dues that it had. And the great thing now is uh, with the reissue of Rocks and Trot is the fact that we've got that bridge now between SF yes. Sorrow and Parachute. How did you get in touch with Philip DeBarge and, and start that process to record that material? That was uh, after, uh, uh, in the wake of SF Sorrow, we weren't, we weren't doing a lot, and uh, and I were writing a lot. EMI, were, as I explained, hadn't hadn't been in any great hurry to to rush us back into the studio. We had a mutual. Uh, we met Philip Dibal through a mutual friend, somebody called Mickey Finn, 
he of uh, Garden of My Mind fame and stuff, he worked, he used to go to Saint-Tropez and uh, play for, you know, a season and, uh, and he'd be on places like that along the French Riviera. And one, uh, one day he, he finished a set somewhere in Saint-Tropez and Philippe said, came up to him and said, you know, I, I really want to make a record and, and my favourite band. It's a pretty thing. Is there any way you can put me in touch with them? When, uh, when Mickey came back to London, he, he bumped into, um, I was in the, uh, in the speakeasy getting um, in a little bit of uh, throat oil. Mickey came to me and he said, um, do you, uh, would you, I, I've met this guy, this French guy, he, you know, he's very wealthy and he wants to make a record. Phil and I thought, well, we're not too sure, but I said, okay, we'll give this is a number if you want to call. The next day, he was on the phone, you know, and he wanted to, and he said, you know, I want to come and, you know, can I, can we make a record? Can you, you know, I, I, he said one of his favorite albums was SF Sorrow, and he was, Phil and I were very kind of not sure. Uh, he, he's coming, I'm coming over. He came to, he came, and we met in London. And uh, and he said, you know, um, uh, we uh, we heard him sing. We we you know had a guitar and we he, he sounded okay. So Phil and I weren't didn't commit to anything, but you know. So anyway, he went back to to France and and he said, listen, why don't you uh, why don't you come down to Saint Tropez? I mean, I'll send you a couple of tickets and you can come down and and we can maybe run through a few things and see how you feel. So he. he <laughs> They were a very wealthy family. Uh, the, the, his father was a, a, an industrial pharmacist, and and they they had they, you know, they were they were kind of well known that area of Saint Tropez. We we went down to Saint Tropez, uh, and we of course it gave us the most amazing time. Uh, and we, we we started playing a few things, and and he said, you know, so we established a basic format. I said, you know, we were go we were going to use the pretty things of the day as backing musicians. Um, and we were going to write all the songs, and he said, "Okay, just do it." I mean, I'll, I'll you know, I'll pay for it. I'll do it, and that's what happened. I, we we did that, and uh, I did a rough mix with them, which then uh, he took away, and I I kind of it kind of lost track. I didn't think much about it until yeah. I don't know how many years later, forty years later or something. Mike Stacks, a good friend of mine, said, emailed me one day and said, look, I found this acetate, you know, of, of a thing you did with this French guy. You know, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. So he said, but I, I, I want to release it as a record, you know, and the, the, the acetate would be quite badly damaged. And it had a very, a, a very poor quality transfer uh, and it was a terrible hum behind yeah. I said, look, Mike, this is useless. We, you know, you need to go to a professional studio uh, and get it and get it transferred professionally. Because the guy was in Finland that had this, put the needle on it. You could hear it. In, and it was going, mm, the terrible background hum. So Mike said, told the guy to go to a professional studio in Helsinki and, and get the transfer made, chalk and cheese. But it was still a lot of work to do. And uh, I didn't know too much about it at the time. We're talking about two th 2008, 2009, I think. When um, and um, so uh, we signed a deal with uh, with um, because Phil and I have produced it. So we signed a deal with Mike. To, he had the rights for so many years, which he he did a good job on. When the, when that deal came to an end, I went to relicense it again. And in the meantime, I gained a lot of knowledge 
uh, about it because I back then in 2008 or nine, I had very little expertise on on digital stuff. But now uh, I felt I, uh, I started look went back to the source material. I was yeah. able to improve it quite a lot. So I thought, well, I'm going to spend some time on this. I spent about three months. Um, I was editing individual, you know, waves of sound, you know, to take out, you know, clicks and cracks and pops and all sorts of stuff. So after three months, I had something which I thought was appreciably better than uh, than than what we've been able to do with Mike. Uh, Snapper Records took it. It was then I called it then at Rock Saint Trop for the first time. It wasn't called that before. I got some great pictures. Because Philippe was he was a he was a good friend of Bridget Bardot. Amazing. For the podcast, we'll play New Day. Oh yes, New Day was yeah. That was the eight track machine really came in handy there because there was lots of you know, things, uh, vocals and things, the submix, and it was yeah, it was quite complicated even on eight track. Couldn't have done it on four track, no way.
So next we have October uh, the 26th uh, by the Pretty Things. And was this post parachute? Yes, yes, it was. There's starting to become more further lineup changes in the band. I think was is it Pete Tolson had was joining in that era. Yeah, uh, Dick left the band and Vic Unit joined. I think he had a history with Edgar Broughton Band and a few other people. Uh, but he is um, he decided after the recording of parachute he decided to leave i think he had he had some problems i mean i was kind of i i was very involved with the bringing to life of essex uh, uh, of parachute i was kind of very concentrated on on that uh, I, I and i think maybe uh, uh, vic was the kind of player that needed a lot of tlc and maybe uh, you know there was i'm not really too sure i think that he had some issues which I wasn't really aware of. I was. I had blinkered doing what I was doing. Before I'd known it, Nick, Vic uh, had left the band, and before Parachute hit the streets, Parachute was uh, was uh, was released in, I think it's June June uh, nineteen seventy. Vic left the band well before that, so we had to find a new guitarist and a friend of mine called Dave Robinson. From Stiff Records and blah 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 everywhere. You know. So he he said to me, you know, I've got this. Uh, he he was managing a band called Air Apparent, uh, and he said, well, there's, we've got this amazing guy called Pete Tolson. He's a very young kid, but he's got you know he's really he's really hot. Pete came down and played with us one day, and I said, well, wow, <laughs> he's uh, he's got this is really quite exciting. And um, almost straight away, he was he was in the band. We you know he we offered him. The pretty things, you know, we don't, we never really, we never really had auditions as such because, I mean, it didn't kind of work. It has to, it has to be like a family. You have to like the people. They have to, you know, it's all, it's all, you know, it's a, it's the personality and the fit of the personality is almost. In fact, it is. It always has been in the pretty things. More important than sheer musical ability, and and his musical ability was extraordinary. For, I mean, he was still a teenager. Uniqueness. The first time he's in the studio with us, we were doing um, October yeah. 26th. And listen to the guitar playing there. It's really, you know, it's really quite extraordinary. I mean, the young kid, precocious talent.
And also in that period, there's a, a track that kind of didn't get the, the airing it deserved. I think it was a, a B-side and that's Summertime. And that's a track that seems to go back in a way to some of the sort of harmony, the sound that you had in the Fenman. Is, is that something that you recognise? Mm, yeah, I think uh, it, it was a very quick... Uh, we had a, a habit in the pretty things of spending, you know, we had three days booked to make a single, you know, and we'd, um, we'd be... And we'd spend like 2.9 of those days making the A-side. I was kind of, I was always kind of involved with production. I was in the control box and we'd be mixing down the single. And then suddenly we'd be, what are we going to do for a B-side? Pete and Phil, I know they've been huddling together and doing stuff in the, you know, corner where I've been kind of in the control and doing stuff. And then, and then the, they were kind of, they were writing, you know, they were doing something. I could cut, they had a riff going and stuff. Anyway, so finally, um, it's maybe like 11 o'clock in the evening. We, we put the, the A side to bed. Now it's coming down and down the stairs and we're down Studio 2, Abbey Road. And I could hear this, everybody was playing except for me. I just arrived, no bass. We played the song a few, and I, I thought, well, you know, needs a bridge. So, well, what? Like what? I, I said, what, what about this? And, 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 and he said, right, well, that's it. We'll do that then. So uh, I sang it. I sang that part. Feel you know, yeah, you just sing it. You know, I mean, just get it done. So we want to, you know, this is a B side. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but it was great to play. It was, and we spent. It didn't have all the the fine manicuring and and everything and the massaging that the A side had. It was just a band that just this is a brand new song and it just bosh that was it. And I think that's just as valid as spending all that time making another kind of. Thing, but this like being off the leash. Norman didn't mind it at the time. We've got to, you know, we've got to get get on with this. <laughs> you know, everybody felt good. It's one of those moments. You know, you can't. You know, then everybody feels, you know, uh, a newness about something like that. You can hear. It, yeah. so, uh, I think it's one of my favourite PT's tracks. See 
Now we have a really interesting track, Eight Man by Marcus Hook, Roll Band. It was that bridge between Van der Young and ACDC, and you were right in the thick of that, weren't you? Yeah. Were you actually in the band in the studio, but also had a hand in the production? What was your role in, in those sessions? It varied. I mean, uh, I uh, I was part of the vocal backing stuff that went on. Um, in fact, you know, on Eight Man, George sings the lead. Uh, I actually sing, I sing a, a bass part, kind of reply to him. Um, he said, I'm your eight man. Oh, I'm your eight man. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I said, and uh, on, on most of the sessions, on most of the songs I was, I was involved, I played a few things. There was, there was one, George was happy. He was happy that I'd been, you know, that I was a, an ex-pretty thing at the time, you know, producing his records. I don't think, you know, I hadn't really played anything. And uh, and and I think he wanted to get me on to, to play something on the bass. He played bass on most of that album. And he said, I'm, I, I want to play piano on, on this, uh, I forget what song it was now. I think it, I think it, was, it was something called uh, Watch Her Do It Now. He, he said, I want to play piano, so you can play the bass on this. And, you know, I did, I did. I think I, you know, uh, I think I played too much. He's a, he was a very basic, simple bass, but he loved it. He said, no, that's great. I said, I think maybe I should simplify. He said, no, that's great. We heard the play, the playback. He said, no, let's have it. So I, I played a bit of keyboards in places as well, um, sang on most things and arranged it. And, uh, and I was the producer. Uh, that was in 1973 or something. The Marcus Hook roll band was the very, the last thing they all did before they became ACDC. And in fact, you know, George, uh, 
I deal with that in Australia. And, and, and George uh, rang me up when I got back uh, because I mixed it, brought it all back, mixed everything in Abbey Road. And then George said, why don't you come over here? Why don't you come and live in Australia? With, with, I'm, I'm starting this venture with Albert, the big publishing house and people. Uh, and he said, I, I, you know, I, I like what you do. I, I, I like your, your production methods. And uh, um, why don't you come over? Live here, start a new life. Thought about it for a while. I, I decided to stay in the UK. I still had a lot of things I wanted to, to do musically. I felt unsure about going to Australia and starting. Maybe, who knows what, who knows? It could have been a whole different story. So I didn't go. And, and the, the album itself came out a while. I, I left EMI in about 75. It wasn't released until after I left anyway. That happened to a lot of stuff uh, that, I, that I did. next song is uh, the pretty things over the moon i think you'd left the group by now but you'd actually you actually sung and wrote this track is that correct yeah i i joined emi in 1971 
Uh, and as I, as I said, the, um, at that time, EMI uh, cancelled <laughs> cancelled the Pretty Things contract. But, but I went to work for the devil. I, Norman said, invited me to join the staff. He recognised that I could do the job and he wanted, anyway, he got me the job as a, but in the meantime, Phil struck a deal with Warner Brothers to make new records. He said uh, in 1972, he asked me, would you, we still had our, uh, Phil, John and myself still had our vocal understanding, which kind of was in the DNA by now. He said, would you produce this record you know, that we're going to make for Warner Brothers? Um, well, uh, this is it's tricky. I've just signed a contract to work exclusively for EMI, but I'm not going to say no. I, I had to invent a pseudonym. <laughs> and I called myself Asa Jones. It was Asa Jones who produced Freeway Madness. So when we, we started, I went to see Phil and we, started listening to mature, routine material. They'd been playing some of the songs on the road. They all said to me, well, have you been writing? You got anything? And I said, well, kind of, you know, I didn't really have proper. Yeah. So he, he said, mm, that sounds good. That's, that's, I'm one of you. Let's do that. That's great. So we finished the song together. We came to, um, to record the song. We tried both John. And uh, and Phil on on the lead vocal, but it wasn't really happening, you know. Because when you write a song, it's very it sounds good because you are who you are, and I mean everybody has a very individual style. Phil said to me, "Listen, you've got to sing this. This is your song. Nobody, no, we're not going to cut it. With uh, it doesn't sound right with with me or with John singing the lead. You better do it." So I said, "Okay, sure." Um, so I did. And uh, at the end of the process of recording the album, I put a string quartet, by the way, on, on, on over the moon. Uh, anyway, so I took the, the finished album, took the tapes to Warner Brothers. There you are. They played everything through and they, uh, they decided in their wisdom that Over the Moon should be the single from the album. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I, couldn't have, I couldn't have an opinion. I couldn't go out on the road with them, although I did. One or two, you know, big gigs in London. I think we did the Rainbow and some others. But I, I was working, <laughs> working for EMI, and uh, I loved my time working at Abbey Road. Uh, I had an office in Manchester Square, but uh, I really enjoyed uh, my work at Abbey Road. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, you're rubbing shoulders with some of the finest engineers and brains, you know, audio brains in the world. I mean, it was, it, Abbey Road was the world's premier recording studio. When you walk in, you walk around in Studio 2, for instance, where, which was known mostly as the Beatles studio, and you can feel the walls are kind of telling you that this is a special place. It's, so much stuff had happened there. And it just, it's very inspirational. I loved working at EMI and I loved, I loved, uh, you know, I, I loved the art of of uh, recording sound and amassing it, massaging it into a single piece of audio, a stereo. I missed terribly not playing to live audiences and not being in a band like the Pretty Things. It was it was an amazing band to be in. We, uh, yeah. we had an amazing rapport. There's a pain I cannot kill. I guess I never will Blue 
the Pretty Things as a band have had quite a, an association with library music. And our next track is one of those, is Wally Walla Band and, and Nighttime. And, and that was uh, originally from an album of library music. Is that right? Yes, it is library music. Library music isn't commonly, isn't available as a commercial disc. Usually, I think some of them are uh, 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 later have been. Uh, I mean, people do find a way of um, getting hold of library music, but um, the Wally Wally band wasn't. It wasn't a band that was out working, doing anything. It was just some musician friends I put together. The Wolf came to me. I wasn't doing a lot. I was. I, I'd done. A, um, they said, "Would you? Would you make an album for you?" Uh, and they for us uh, in this kind of yeah. in this style. They wanted something a bit discoish. I think we're talking now in the wake of Saturday Night Fever and stuff. Right, and then right. they decided that their library was was lacking um, something simple, more simple. So they said, "Can you do something?" So I, yeah, you know, I wrote a couple of songs and said, "What a." Is this the kind of thing you want? And they said, yeah, that's great. And then I wrote some more. Mostly, I mean, it was kind of really kind of four to the bar on the bass drum. And it's just kind of that disco. But it's, but I can't, I couldn't make, that's as close as, as disco as I can make anything. I would, But they like to, so doing very well. Because library music sells over, you know, this is, I think I'm going back, I think it's 78. I made that, it's still earning very well indeed, thank you. On some current Netflix productions and stuff, and so oh. it's still a good form of income. Nobody buying the records, but people are hearing the music in the background of various TV productions, yeah. and I get paid. I like that. <laughs> Shadow, suitcase, and hand. She'll never manage to come back close to 
our next song and one of your productions that I think took a while to come out and that's John Lee's Untitled Number One Heritage and so John famous for being Barclay James Harvest the sort of driving force behind that but um, th- this was a solo project and I, I just I was looking at the, the credits there and there's a there's a lot of names that everyone will be familiar with uh, Gordon Edwards Rod Argent Skip combination of, of forces um, pretty things related Rod Argent on a lot of stuff but obviously John there yeah, well, I, I, I produced Barclay James Harvest and other short stories. So I, I had a, I don't think everybody in the band I'm talking about, Barclay James Harvest, were, were um, overly enamored with what I did on Barclay James Harvest and other short stories. But I think John liked what I did. And, and uh, I'm not sure when it was. It was in the wake of that anyway. Then he wanted to make a solo album. They were signed to AMI. He came to me and uh, he said, you know, uh, I want to do this solo project. I said, well, yeah, that's great. That's, uh, so how are we going to do this? He, well, he didn't want to use anybody from Berkeley James Arvis. He wanted this to be a complete, complete different, a whole different thing. So he said, you know, we can get some session musicians in. And, and he said, I, 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 don't, I don't really want to want to go through a whole kind of routining stuff and do that. I just want to, you know, maybe if I, you know, I come to the studio and I'll play the song and people can just latch onto it and we'll see where we go. You know, I didn't think at the time, and I still don't think that getting, you know, straight session guys to come in would have been, how would it be, I, you know, if I played the bass and got some guys in that, that I know and we can we'd be more kind of, a more comfortable way to work for, you know, to we can, Nobody gets upset if you make a mistake or something. We just, we can just, yeah. He said, yeah, that's cool. So he didn't, we didn't. I said, well, look, I, I, I thought as a basic combo, John could be on acoustic guitar. I'd play the bass, Skip on drums, uh, Skip Allen, and Gordon Edwards as a keyboard player. And I thought, you know, that as a as a basic combo, as a basic kind of nucleus for that we can you know, expand the recordings from. How, how does that sound? He said, well, yeah, that's cool. Uh, so well, he and John would come in to the studio, play the song, and then as a, as a producer, you have to think, right, how we, what are we going to do? You know, how, we had, there, there, was no, there was no planning at all. We just, it was kind of instant. With the, the track you're going to play, Heritage, is a, you know, it starts in a, in a, in a slow way, uh, and it, 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 was, it, was kind of, it was free form. Um, there has to be an understanding between, you know, we knew how how things were were going to pan out, but it had to. I kind of, I kind of, I drove it from the base. You know, there was kind of an ethereal intro sound, and then I pick up the rhythm from the bass, which is nothing to do with anything. But then everybody's got to latch onto that: the drums and the piano and and, and John. So it, it was it was an interesting experience. I've never done anything like that before or since it was very rewarding to to be able to do that in the middle of the song it digresses into this kind of ethereal thing again and i've got i've got the tempo still running the other tempo so i have to pick it up and bring everybody in and every skip was a he took an age to get i'm thinking (laughs) come on do it you know (laughs) And he tippy chapping around playing stuff, and then it took him, and then suddenly he locked back into tempo, and it sounded. Then I thought, oh god, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, it's I, I enjoyed 
playing that track tremendously. It was, it was good therapy uh, after not being, after not playing for a long while, well, not seriously anyway, since I left the Pretty Things in 71.
So now to Phil May and the Fallen Angels, Girl Like You. I, I spoke to Phil about this a decade ago and he mentioned that the spark of that project was through Mickey Finn, but the <laughs> it, there's quite a backstory behind that album, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. We I, I joined uh, latterly. Um, there has been a whole... The beginning of the project was Mickey was at the at the beginning, and it had gone through a few years getting to well. Phil joined, then I joined, uh, and then it started to sound like a band. Apparently, before that, it really hadn't. It was just um, I don't know. I mean, Mickey found this uh, found this financier who was willing to stump up the money, and uh, and uh, but nothing nothing came to we uh, we rehearsed for a while. And then it was decided we should go to Geneva <laughs> to start recording. <laughs> we had a lovely time there. We got it was a very um, liquid time, and uh, it's a miracle that anything came out at all. One or two of the tracks uh, turned out quite quite well. I think I think "Girl Like You" is the one you're going to play, which I which I felt was probably my pick from that album. It was a wild time. We lived just outside of Geneva, and it was in the summer, but it was a ski lodge. But I say it was up in the hills. And on the uh, Phil managed to roll two cars, uh, and Hertz Hertz wouldn't let him have another one. So wow. <laughs> it would, yeah, you can you can imagine the kind of the kind of shenanigans that went on. It was fun, and uh, I look back with uh, with a lot of joy. We had a fantastic uh, time. It was good camaraderie, and and finally we managed to make some music. <laughs>
you got together with XPTs, uh, ex members of the Pretty Things, to to remodel and, and remake Parachute yeah. a while back, and and we have seen one, the good Mister Square here, and I think that that album's also getting a or has had recently a vinyl release. Which so um, what was the spark of of getting some of the band back together to remake Parachute? Well, John and I have been uh, close friends. Uh, um, John left the Pretty Things before I did, and he. Uh, we often would meet up, he would come to my place, we'd make some music. We were both kind of helping each other with various projects and doing stuff. And I've always been tremendously frustrated. I was never allowed to remix or do anything or, or any of our classic stuff. The, uh, the manager didn't, wouldn't give me permission to do anything. with. Uh, I felt that Parachute had been released, I don't know how many times now, um, and it needed needed to be remixed. It, you can't just keep the, the same old audio over and over. Norman Smith regarded me as his protege, so startlingly yeah. obvious that I'm the man should, should do do something. So I I thought, you know, well maybe just do some, just do it all over again. Do it, you know, get Pete Cholson back and, and John Pip Allen. He he was up for it. Yeah. I wanted Phil to come. Politics of pretty things were. Yeah. It wouldn't have been cool for him to hear out to me. I love all you guys. I'm with you in spirit. Because I changed a few of the songs around. You know, I, I sent him demos of what, what I proposed to do uh, and and asked him to write because there were new parts. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm saying, write some new lyrics. And he, uh, and he did. I mean, he wrote new lyrics. He, he, was part of the, he was part of the process. It was going at the same time. John uh, knew this a guy called John Wood, Woody, at a studio in in Malaga, and he um, said, "You know, he's a very sympathetic kind of guy. It's a good place to go." I thought, "Yeah, you know, because you know, when as as older men, you kind of you when you finish what you're doing, you go. Everybody goes home and to their you know their various you know houses and but you know if we were in you know we were in Malaga." We stayed in the villa together. It, you know, the intensity was there. It was it was something that, you know, we, it was with you twenty four hours a day. You didn't go home to your miss, or you know, it was kind of yeah. it was you know, it was with you twenty four hours a day. It was a great feeling to be. It's the kind of thing. It felt like we were young kids again doing it, which is that kind of enthusiasm uh, and optimism of youth is a, a wonderful elixir when you get to this end of that evolutionary scale so uh, i thought it was great everybody's on top form i we, everybody threw ideas into the hat we finally came to uh, the situation where some of it is uh, is comfortingly familiar for parachute listers yeah uh, of days gone by in other places it's a challenge i mean it's no it was absolutely no point in trying to make a carbon copy of what we did 50 years ago and, and I thought that, that a song like What's the Use? It was a very short thing on Parachute. It, was, it should yeah. have been developed more. So anyway, I, uh, we did. Better or worse, that's for the listener to decide. But I, I, I liked what we did. I thought we all had, you can feel camaraderie there in the, in the recordings. It, it, it was a good time that, that we all enjoyed. And sadly, it was Pete's last venture as an album. So for a swan song, you have to say it's, it's pretty, it's fitting. Anybody who hasn't really latched onto his, uh, his, his virtuosity before should, 
have a good listen to this. It's well worth it. Wally, such a pleasure talking to you. So many stories and such incredible music that you've crafted over the last 60 years. You know, to close with the XPTs is, is just wonderful. And it's great to see that it's now got a vinyl release so people can can listen to it in a way as, as intended. Yeah, I've had a lot of people asking me, um, they don't have the ability to to play vinyl. This is a world exclusive you're getting here, Jason. Oh. Having talked to John Edwards from Renaissance Records, we're going to do a, a CD version uh, at some point anyway. But right now, you can get the double vinyl album, which I'm very proud of. Let's hope everybody enjoys too. Okay. God bless. Bye. Bye. Toes, rise high. darker skies. Unlaced populations beneath molten feet that good Mr. Square he doesn't have any hands he spends his time looking through other people's eyes that good Mr. Square
crashed in the sky And all the good people weren't able to fly She tried making love every day But he couldn't see what she was trying to say For the message in a bottle it was never too late But 35 years was a long time to wait Whereas the main man wasn't looking too well Another kind of job might have for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.